the Blood Covenant. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 6. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We ask you, please, to help us to understand who we are in Christ and what you've done for us in this covenant. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Galatians 3.29 says, And if ye are Christ's, then ye are, ye, then are, ye, then ye are Abraham's seed. You are Abraham's seed, and your heirs according to the promise. Now, tell you what, I want you to turn to, to Hebrews chapter 9. I want to read something about blessing. Now, again, we have been blessed. The Bible says categorically that we, as God's people, have been blessed with faithful Abraham. That we've been blessed with the same promises that God's blessed him with. Now, just let me read this. Um, and give me about, just probably take me 10 minutes to read these things, but I want you to read. You're going to have to listen because, again, it's written from a theological point of view. It says, what does bless, blessed, and blessing mean, actually? These terms translate into English different forms of the same Hebrew word, barak. The barak root is translated blessed 214 times, Blessed, 61 times. Blessing, 67 times in the Hebrew statement. John W. Oswald says the major function of Barak, quote, seems to have been to confer abundant and effective life upon something or someone. He further states, quote, to bless in the Old Testament means, quote, to endue with power for success, prosperity, fecundity, longevity. And fecundity means fruitfulness and childbearing. Consequently, Oswald says, in the patriarchal narratives, blessing is linked specifically to reproductive powers. Now, not just physically, but in every way. Now, just stay with me. The lesson is clear. God gives life. God said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, that you might be a blessing. This is why we have to study the covenant, have to study the covenant God made with Abraham. And the, the thing that gets so good about this, if you actually stay with the study, is again, when you actually, when something begins to twig up here, that of everything you're reading, that in everything that you're reading from the Old Testament, and that suddenly you realize we have a better covenant that's based upon even better promises. But I got to tell you something. The promises of the Old Covenant aren't bad. <laughs> And, you know, if God help us, just catch that. But again, see, nothing happens. Let me go back to the basic teaching of faith again. Is it God's will for all men to be saved? Yes. Is it? Yes. Does not the scripture in 2 Timothy categorically say it is God's will that all men be saved? Mm -hmm. yep. Will all men be saved? No. But it's God's will. And that they come to the knowledge of the truth. Is it God's will that all men come to the knowledge of the truth? Yeah. Will they? No. So really, really, see, you gotta, you've got, this is a fulcrum that's in the middle of all these things. 
This is why all the courses that I'm teaching, the, the love of God, the grace of God, this whole thing. In Christ, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes answer in Christ Jesus. Profound verse. All the promises of God find their yes answer in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we utter the amen to them. Whatever grace, God's great love to us in bringing Jesus to this earth, whatever God's grace has made available, our faith, nevertheless, has to reach out and appropriate before it manifests to ourselves. Whatever grace is made available, faith must obtain. In other words, everybody on the street is potentially saved, but that doesn't ever mean that they will be saved. So you've got to keep this in the midst of all this kind of a discussion because of the fact, again, well, if these things are promises, why don't they just come to pass? Well, <laughs> if there's ever been anything that's the sure will of God, it's man's salvation. But it coming to pass has something to do with man's cooperation. And so it is with every single promise of God. It's not that God, God doesn't force these things on us, but the starting point, you see, is you and I need to find out what's been promised in this covenant. We need to know that a covenant is everlasting. We need to know that God has sworn himself that he will never deny himself, that these things are sure and certain, and that we need to get a bit aggressive about it. They don't just fall off on you. You, can't, you don't hope these things happen because you've got birds of the air that are consistently trying to destroy this sacrifice. I mean, they're constantly flying around this thing like gnats. Like, remember Satan? One of Satan's names is Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. You know, fly, they drive you nuts. That's what this stuff does. They're constantly at you. You have to drive them. You have to drive them away. Abram had to drive these fowls of the air away from the sacrifice, and so do you. Second paragraph, bottom page three. In the Old Testament, Barak is used in those contexts which present God alone as the source of blessing. Whatever may have been the ancient, quote, this is a quote from the TWT, the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament that I study from a lot. Whatever may have been the ancient Near Eastern conception of the source of blessing, the Old Testament sees God as the only source. Therefore, quote, it is clear that for the Old Testament, the abundant life rest directly upon the loving and faithful nature of God. You say, well, so what? I know that. Okay, <laughs> keep going. Turn to the next page. Real quickly, seven areas of blessing. God endues with power for an abundant life. He endues with power for an effective life. Since life can be neither effective nor abundant apart from the right relationship with God, we may say that God also endues with power for the salvation of the soul. He endues with power for success, power for prosperity, power for fecundity, power for longevity. Next paragraph. In addition, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, translate the Hebrew word barak with the Greek word eulogia. This word eu, which means well, with logos, which means speech, eulogia means well spoken, and in its various and in its various terms is translated into English by blessed, blessed, or blessing. Dr. H.G. Link, writing about the meaning of eulogia, where, as the translation of Barak says, quote, basically, Barak means to endue with, with beneficial power. Now, now, again, don't just get bored with this because 
You've been blessed. Amen. Amen. <laughs> God, God help me. <laughs> You've been blessed. Amen. Let's see. I want you to know what blessed means. This is the reason I printed this thing out today. You've been blessed. Amen. So that you might be a blessing. But if you don't even believe you've been blessed, you can't give to somebody else what you don't possess yourself. You've got to believe it about yourself. You've got to believe that you are who God says you are. That's the basic premise of what our Christianity is about. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. God who calls those things to be not as though they were. We speak of non-existent things as though they were. I'm blessed. I'm a blessed man. You see, when I say that, like I said in the first hour of this course, we're going to have to redefine words. I'm not just saved. I'm saved healed. I'm saved healed blessed. I had to see the words together as one word. Dr. Link, he, basically Barak means endue with, with beneficial power. I don't want to take all night on that. This meaning involves both the process of enduing and the condition of being endued. Hence, blessing originally involved a self... Uh, hence, blessing originally involved a self-contained beneficial force which one could transmit to another. Again, God said to Abram, I've blessed you that you might be a blessing. When you begin to believe you've been blessed is when you're going to be able to bless others. Boy, that is profound and millionaires laying on hands, all kinds of stuff. See, you, have, you do not have the power to heal a gnat, but you've been blessed by God, and now you can bless others because this blessing is a self-contained beneficial force which can be transmitted to another. Dr. Link equates blessing, both of them, with well-being. He says, quote, the nature of the blessing is that of conferring and transference of beneficial power which produces fertility in men and in livestock and lands. Blessing works vertically in the continued growth of succeeding generations. Horizontally, it affects peace, security from enemies, good fortune, well-being for a tribe or group. He summarizes by saying that blessing portrays the earthly well-being of the people and the land. Last paragraph there. Concerning the use of these words, Dr. Link states that, quote, it is a striking feature of the formulation of the promise that in these programmatic promises, the root barak occurs five times each time in a different form as the key word. But blessing is the key word in the Abrahamic covenant, not only for the history of Israel, but also all families of the earth. For this reason, Genesis 12, 3 sets before, quote, all tribes of the earth a history of blessing. It includes a liberation from all these things. Now, uh, included within the scope of God's beneficial power is well-being for every area of life. That is salvation for the soul, material wealth, at the very least having our needs met, physical health, etc. From these three great facts, we derive the following concise definition of Barak Eulogia. God's beneficial endowment of power to produce well-being in every area of life. That's what blessing means. Next paragraph, a word must be said about God as the source of blessing. From Genesis through the Revelation, the God of Scripture specifically singled out from the rest of humanity only one group of people, Abraham and his seed, to whom he specifically committed himself in the form of 60 promises. Because of this commitment, God embraced Abraham and his seed in a way in which he embraced no other group of people in recorded history. 
These 60 promises made exclusively to one group of people contain his commitment to bless them to the full extent allotted within the meaning of the words. Since both the 60 promises and Barak eulogia encompass within their borders the concept of, quote, God's endowment of beneficial power to produce well-being in every area of life, it follows that God intends for nothing beneficial to be withheld from this particular group. Now, the God of Scripture himself made this commitment to withhold nothing beneficial from this one group, i.e. Abraham and his seed. No other God ever made such a commitment to them. In addition, the God of Scripture neither directed these 60 promises nor made a similar commitment to any other group of people. In other words, the God of Scripture and no other God made an exclusive, an exclusive commitment in the form of these promises to one group only, Abraham and his seed to no others in recorded history. Therefore, wherever Scripture records something beneficial from this one God of Scripture and directed to this one group, we are not only justified, but we are also logically compelled to do two things. We are forced to attribute the origin and the existence of that beneficial something to the Abrahamic covenant. To put it another way, God's blessings to this exclusive group, wherever we find these blessings recorded in Scripture, owe both their origin and their existence to the Abrahamic covenant. This is so whether the term blessing is used or not. Dr. Link said, quote, It is therefore necessary for the understanding of the Old Testament concept of blessing to deal not only with cases of the Barak and Eulogia groups of words, but also with texts which describe the blessings in their own way without using this terminology. To be more precise in Scripture, whether the Old or New Testament, any blessing that passes from their one covenant God of Scripture to this one group covered by the 60 promises, that blessing owes both its origin and its existence to the Abrahamic covenant, whether the blessing is used or not. In addition, final paragraph, don't faint. This one God made this exclusive commitment to one group and placed this commitment within a time frame. Now listen to this. He placed this commitment within a time frame. He declared that this 60 promises covenant structure would continue forever. He said forever. Promise 35 says, quote, The covenant between God, Abraham, and his seed and their generation coming after Abraham is an everlasting covenant. Promise 49 declares, I will establish my covenant with Isaac's seed after him for an everlasting covenant. Consequently, until one can prove that God canceled, set aside, subsumed, or voided his forever, then we must conclude two things. Number one, any blessing that passes from the God of Scripture to the one Abrahamic seed group owes both its origin and its existence to the 60 promises covenant structure. And two, this is so no matter where in Scripture we find the blessing recorded. It is just as true when blessing is recorded in the New Testament for two simple reasons. The reason one, the term forever encompasses the New Testament era as well as the Old Testament. Number two, the Abrahamic seed group is still in existence in the New Testament era. More on this later. And again, but that's why we quoted Galatians 3.29. And finally, since the covenant and the Abrahamic seed group both last forever, we must look for these crucial concepts throughout all the scriptures. No theological system can be relied upon which fails to give these two concepts their proper place. Now, boy, I know I'm reading a whole lot of stuff to you, but you're going to have to love me anyhow. I just won't go to heaven. Now, in Hebrews chapter 9... Actually, in chapter 8, we're going to read, we read this in the grace message again too, but I'm going to read the last few verses of chapter 8 again because I want you to be 
be in this, chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is now, he, Christ, has acquired a priestly ministry. Now again, just please say this with me. I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. That's really good. That's good. Because <laughs> uh, I want you to believe the next verses. As it is now, he, Christ, has acquired a priestly ministry which is as much superior and more excellent than the old as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior and more excellent because it is enacted and it rests upon more important, higher, nobler promises. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been without defect, there would have been no room for another one or an attempt to institute another one. This is Hebrews 8, verse 7. Now verse 8 of Hebrews 8. However, it says he finds fault with them, showing its inadequacy when he says, and when he prophesied, in other words, Behold, the days will come, says the Lord, when I will make and ratify a new covenant or agreement with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now hopefully you'll remember this, those that have been with us through the year. The one reference that the Spirit of God feels right to show the major difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I mean, remember, all Scripture was written by men as they were moved upon, written by, the, was written by men, but as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit authored the Scriptures, right? Listen to this. It says in the last part of verse chapter 8 says, uh, verse 8 says, he said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Verse 9, it will not be, everybody say not be. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers on the day when I grasped them by the hand to help and relieve them and to lead them out from the land of Egypt. For they did not abide in my agreement with them. So what did God do? So I withdrew my favor and I disregarded them, says the Lord. But did you hear it? He said, but the new covenant will not be like the old covenant. In the old covenant, when people stepped out of the agreement, I'm only reading what it says. When people did not abide in the agreement, God, it says here, withdrew his favor and disregarded them. What's the only thing that you can equate then from what's being said here? See, the grace of God is too good to be true. You think when you make a mistake, God distances himself from you, withdraws from you, removes his favor from you. This is what most people think. I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus Christ, in this new covenant, when you step out of the agreements, God does not move away from you. You can move away from Him. But God's as close to you as He ever was, just waiting for you to acknowledge Him and allow Him to come bursting back into your life. And let me just keep reading. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will imprint my laws upon their minds, even upon their innermost thoughts and understanding. 
I'm going to engrave this covenant upon their hearts, whereas before it was on tablets of stone and the law, that, that part of the covenant. And it will never more be necessary for each one to teach his neighbor and his fellow citizen or each one his brother saying, know, perceive, have knowledge of, get acquainted with the Lord because all are going to know me from the smallest to the greatest of them. For I'm going to be, this is the will of God. See, I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry, but God said in this new covenant, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do to you? I'm going to be merciful. Mm. Amen. Yes, amen. I will be merciful. Amen. God help us. Thank you, Lord. I will be merciful. I grow so weary of all the people that say things other than say things against the God that we serve that's anything other than that. You want to know how God's going to treat you? Mercifully. I hear people say all the time, if somebody makes a big mistake, whew, I wonder how God's going to deal with him, mercifully. Because <laughs> he can't deny who he is. He is love. He won't deny his own nature. You've, you've got to get rid of every little ounce of wrong information that's been tattooed upon you through junk over the years that gives you any representation of God being angry at you. God standing aloof from you. God even frowning at you. I don't want you to have an iota of that thought in your being. God has one major attribute towards you and that is his mercy, which springs from the fact that he is love. He is love. This is, again, see, Romans 2, 4, it is the goodness of God that is intended to draw your hearts and minds to repentance. God's intention is that if we ever show people how truly good He is, what He's actually done in Christ, that the overwhelming sense of acceptance will cause you to want him. That you'll see something so beautiful, so it's devastating. His, his love for us is literally obscene in its mercy towards us. I mean, it just, it, you have to use words in a new fashion. I'm sorry. But it's just all through Scripture. It's all through Scripture. And people will dig for one little bitty something. I mean, you know, I challenge people. You know, you, you, for every little Scripture that you want to hope is true that says God's going to kick your rear end, you'll find some little Scripture. I'll show you 105 that will say they'll love you. I mean, you know, why do people want to go to the half of 1% when you got 99.5% that's saying something else. Why are people looking for a way to be miserable? Is what I'm trying to say. Why do people look for a reason to be condemned? I mean, what is wrong with us? I mean, you know, you don't, you go to the truth, you go to the cure. Let me just, for this is the covenant 
I'm going to write this stuff upon their hearts. I will be their God. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And it will never be more necessary for everybody to teach everybody, he said, because everybody's going to know me because I'm going to come on the inside of every one of them. For I will be merciful and gracious to their sins and I will remember their deeds of unrighteousness no more. When God speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, out of use. And what is obsolete, out of use? And annulled because of age is ripe for disappearance and to be dispersed with altogether. Now, I don't want to go all through Hebrews 9 and 10 again because we did that in the, when we taught on the righteousness of God. So with whatever time I got left, I've got to jump ahead a long ways right now to get you to something. I want to show you, go to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I'm going all the way to lesson 6. 1 uh, Samuel chapter 20. I want, you to I want you to see a Bible thing. I want you to see about Jonathan and David for a moment because we're going to, I can't cover all this tonight, but then we'll get, we'll be able to get to this next week because this part it's got such an important truth and it's incredible first Samuel chapter 20 David fled this is verse 1 from Naoth and Ramon came and you remember Jonathan is King Saul's son Saul's trying to kill David but uh, you know in Jonathan Saul's son loves David he sees something in David that he knows is right David fled from Naoth and Ramon came and said to Jonathan what have I done and of what am I guilty what is my life my sin, rather, before your father, that he seeks to kill me. Verse 2, Jonathan said, God forbid, you shall not die. My father does nothing great or small but what he tells me, and why should he hide this thing from me? It is not so. But David replied, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Whatever you desire, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Tomorrow is the new moon festival, and I shall not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field to the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for the family. If he says, All right, then it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Verse 8. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought me into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, or why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far, you need to listen to this discussion they're having, you see. Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that evil was determined for you by my father, would I not tell you? Then said David to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Jonathan said, Come, let us go into the field. So they went into the field. Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Now watch this. You see, we're just reading, but people don't read what happened. Let's go into the field because they're going to cut a covenant. And watch this. Let's go into the field. Verse 12, Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel, The Lord God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well inclined toward David and I do not sin and let you know it, the Lord do so and so much more to Jonathan. You see, this is one, this is single to single person as opposed to tribe to tribe. But what you're seeing here is a form of what? What I'll do and what I won't do, a blessing, a cursing. The Lord do so and much more to Jonathan, but if it please my father to do you harm, then I will disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. 
Now, verse, no, listen to what Jonathan says. While I'm still alive, you shall not only show me the loving kindness of the Lord so that I die not, but also you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not even when the Lord has cut off every enemy of David from the face of the earth. Verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, And the Lord will require that this covenant be kept at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again by his love for him, for Jonathan loved him as he loved his own life. Now, again, verse 14 says, While I'm still alive, you shall not only show me the loving kindness. This is where we introduce the Hebrew word hasid. It's on the outline down here. I don't... I don't I'm, I'm gonna, I'll see if I can read some of it. This is the word Hasid. Let me just actually, let me start reading here because we'll see how far I can get uh, until we actually get to the next part where they actually trade swords and the whole bit, but there's something here. Now, if you'll see on the outline here, the paragraph underneath the, the scripture passage. Throughout the scripture and almost all ancient Bible scholars agree that Hasid is representative of the unfailing love and loyalty of Jehovah God that is the concrete issue behind covenant. Now, you've got to read this with me. If you don't have this, and if you don't have the outlines, you need to at least get the copy of these pages. This is the power of the covenant, the love of Almighty God toward mankind. Because of this love, He has entered into covenant with us, and His love is forever. Now, listen. Throughout the Old Testament, the words mercy, loving kindness, Kindness are all covenant terms. Think of all the Psalms. Every time David speaks about his mercies and there forever, the loving kindness of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, the goodness, all of these words are derivative of the word hasid. Now watch, this is right out of the lexicon. There's like, again, this thing that I'm about to read you here is all this page and the next page. <laughs> but I've got to read this. And I've got some parts highlighted. The word is a noun, hasid. Loving kindness is translated as steadfast love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, goodness, devotion. Now, again, you've got to take the time to read this whole definition of hasid. How many of you have heard that word before? Well, how about Hasidic Jews? That's the word. What it speaks to is those who are so strongly walking within this covenant as they read it today. But listen to, to what the renditions of the word mean here. It says, this word is used 240 times in the Old Testament, frequently in the Psalms. The term is one of the most important in the vocabulary of Old Testament theology and ethics. The Septuagint nearly always renders seed with elios, which is the word mercy. And that usage is reflected in the New Testament. Modern translations, in contrast, generally prefer renditions close to the word grace. Usually has mercy, King James usually has mercy, although loving kindness, favor, other translations, and so on. But now, you see the part that I have in italics? In general, one may identify three basic meanings of the word, which always, say always. always. There's three basic meanings of the word which always interact. Strength, steadfastness, and love. Any understanding of the word that fails to suggest all three inevitably loses some of its richness. Love by itself can easily become sentimentalized or universalized apart from the covenant, yet strength and steadfastness suggest only the fulfillment of a legal or other obligation. The word refers primarily to mutual and reciprocal 
rights and obligations between the parties of a relationship, especially Yahweh and Israel. Listen, but Hasid is not only a matter of obligation. It is an obligation, but it's not only a matter of obligation, it's a matter of generosity. But it's not only a matter of loyalty, it's also a matter of mercy. In other words, you see, this is why, again, when you see, when God loves, He loves strongly, devotedly. It's, there's nothing about God that's not passionate. And uh, it's not only a matter of, matter of loyalty, but also mercy. The weaker party seeks the protection and blessing of the, of the patron and the protector. Now, the next, the next paragraph. Hasid, this is the next part of this in italics if you have the outlines. Listen, I love this, this part of it. Hasid implies, really, if you don't have the outline, listen to this sentence. Hasid implies personal involvement and commitment in a relationship that goes beyond the rule of law. Now remember, as we read this, all through the scripture, God, the word, the way the Hasid is used, God Hasid's people. God shows Hasid to his people. I will remember you in my Hasid all through the Old Testament, everywhere, mercy, goodness, kindness, love, favor, all is tied up in this Hasid of God. But listen to what Hasid does. Hasid implies personal involvement. I want you to think about God when you think about this. God has Haseded you. You know what the New Testament derivative of Hasid is? Agape. Agape is the New Testament equivalent to Hasid. God so loved the world. He so, he so agapied the world. But listen, Hasid implies personal involvement. I want you to know that God wants to get personally involved with you. Hasid implies personal involvement and commitment in a relationship, but listen, beyond the rule of law. Marital love, listen now, how, how, even back then how they wrote this. Marital love is often related to Hasid. Marriage certainly is a legal matter. And there are legal sanctions for infractions. Yet, the relationship of marriage, if sound, hopefully far transcends just the legal formality. Hence, the word devotion is sometimes the single English word best capable of capturing the nuance of the original. The RSV attempts to bring this out by its translation, steadfast love. Hebrew writers often underscored the element of steadfastness or strength by always pairing the word hasid with emet, which is the word for truth and reliability, and imunya, which is the word for faithfulness. The biblical usage frequently speaks of someone doing, showing, or keeping hasid. Now the reason, I'm going to read this again. Hasid implies personal involvement and commitment in a relationship beyond the rule of law. Listen, I'm married to Julie. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right? Y'all heard the old joke about marriage. You know, if a woman says to the husband, why don't you? I mean, you never tell me that you love me. And the guy says, well, I told you I loved you when I married you. Right? You know what I mean? Would that impress a woman much? Is that what a woman wants? But the point is, no. Because, uh, see, we're, this is what you got to see. Is married enough then? You see, this is what Hasid's about. See, God doesn't. I love you. God, it implies personal involvement 
and commitment beyond the rule of law. In other words, I don't love you. It's this thing where, again, I always get embarrassed when I do this in a conference or something like this because what, if, when you read these other word meetings, it's not God, I love you. It's just, I, it's, I, I, I try to do it like this. I can tell Julie I love her, or I can put my hands on her shoulders and squeeze her just enough that it starts to hurt and look in her eyes and say, I love you. Now that's, she sees that as very different from me going, I love you. Hey, baby, I love you. There's something, what I mean is, that's when she goes, ah. <laughs> You're getting corny now. But what I mean is because it's not I love you, it's she senses this, this, the passion. She senses the strength. She senses a fervor. She senses that there's, there's a lot more there than just the relationship uh, or that is involved in the fact that legally we have a contract. Do you hear what I'm trying to get at? We are legally, absolutely, positively, we are in what God's heaven, what heaven's economy and judicial system sees as a legal, we are legally, economically even, we are signed into a contract. But see, a contract in and of itself is what creates law and what creates, again, uh, an atmosphere of, well, God does this, God does that, or I can do this, and we can... But see, what you've got to get is this other part. That's, otherwise, that's where Christianity then, if you don't have this, Christianity becomes religion. Please hear me. If you don't have what we're getting at here, you can't see God just saying, I love you. You've got to see him saying, it's like this. Psalm 23, the Hebrew word in the last part of Psalm 23. I've got it in the notes here if you've got the notes. But little words that you learn to read. Psalm 23, it says... You know what the last verse of Psalm 23 says? Remember? It says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now that's what your Western mind reads. The word follow is a covenant word all together, and it means it's the word redap, or it's transliterated redap, R-A-D-A-P. When you think of follow, now just think about it. This is why you start to read the Bible different if you know so what some of the words mean. You think follow. The, uh, surely the goodness, what, what, what is going to, first of all, what's going to follow? Surely what? Goodness. goodness and mercy. Well, guess what those words are? That's Hasid. This covenant. All this commitment and personal involvement that's beyond the rule of law. All this intensity of God. It's following you. Well, even that sounds good, but the word follow, if you're not careful, if you have a dog, have you ever walked and had a dog follow you? Yes. Which is kind of, and you think about what? Something just tripping along behind. The word redap, if you look at it in a lexicon, it says literally this, quote, it says to pursue with the intent of overtaking and destroying. To pursue with the intent of overtaking and destroying. It speaks of a violent pursuit. It's metaphorical, but the point that you've got to see is this. You see, the only illustration I can ever give is if you've ever seen the movie Top Gun or anything like that. All you girls have seen Top Gun because you're all in love with Tom Cruise. But the point is about a, a fighter jet trying to track another jet and wait until they get that jet caught in the crosshairs and get a radar lock on. You've seen it in films. God's not following you. He's in hot pursuit of you. This is what you've got to see. 
He's pursuing you with the intent of overtaking you and firing some missiles of blessing <laughs> into your life to the point they explode if you could ever slow down long enough for him to get you in, your cross, in his crosshairs. But see, God's not following the mercies, the hasid, the goodness, the love, this promise, this covenant that God's trying to... We have a mindset that we are having to arm wrestle God into submission. My Bible says the eyes of the Lord are running throughout the entire earth searching for somebody to show himself strong to. But if you have a vision of God, a mindset of God that he's up there in some holy cloud hoping that you find the right combination one day that just maybe you may just, you know, say the right words that just possibly I'll just let a little drop of mercy come your way. No, this is what I mean. This is when you begin to see that Elias' word mercy is part of a seed. And then again, that's what I mean. And you see that verse, the mercies of the Lord are brand new every morning. What David was saying, David was caught up in this. The sure, I, I'll give unto you the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies, all of this stuff caught up with this. Well, let me keep reading. Next paragraph. The Bible prominently uses the term Hasid to summarize and characterize a life of sanctification within and response to the covenant. Similarly, Micah 6, 8 features Hasid in the prophet's summary of biblical ethics and what did the Lord require thee but to love mercy. But behind all these uses with man as subject, however, stand the repeated references to God's Hasid. It is one of his most central characteristics. Jump down to the next italicized part. The entire history of Yahweh's covenantal relationship with Israel can be summarized in terms of Hasid. That's an incredible statement. The entire history of Yahweh's covenantal relationship with Israel can be summarized in the terms of this one word. You need to understand Hasid. It is the one permanent, listen to this, it is the one permanent element in the flux of all covenantal history. The one permanent thing is God's Hasid. What's Hasid? His desire for personal involvement and commitment beyond the root of law. A passion, strength, love, steadfast, but a steadfast love. Not just a love, but a steadfast love. A strong love. It is the one permanent element in the flux of covenantal history. Even the creation itself is the result of God's Hasid. Now I'm going to go down and go to the very, if you, if you haven't, I'm turning the page to go to the, about the last seven, verse, last seven verses, last seven sentences of the final paragraph there. The association of Hasid with covenant keeps it from being misunderstood as mere providence or love for all creatures. It applies primarily to God's particular love for his chosen and covenanted people. Covenant also stresses the reciprocity of the relationship. But since God's seed is ultimately beyond even the covenant, it will not ultimately be abandoned even when the human partner is unfaithful and must be disciplined. Keep hearing me. I'm giving you an overview. Okay? I'm trying to whet your interest. I'm trying to light some fuses to make you go into this further. I know I'm not giving you all the information. 2 Samuel 9, you better turn there quick. Remember David and Jonathan? 2 Samuel 9. Jonathan is dead now. He gets killed in the war. 
David goes, wins battle after battle after battle after battle. Verse 1 of chapter 9, but watch David. Remember, Jonathan made him swear if it'd be good to my household. Look how strong covenant is. Verse 1, chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show what? Kindness, Hesed. For Jonathan's sake, and of the house of Saul, there was a servant whose name was Ziba. When they'd called him to David, he said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, I, your servant, am he. The king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul? Now watch this in the Amplified. Listen to the verse in the Amplified. Is there, listen to David's heart. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the unfailing, unsought, unlimited mercy and kindness of God? You listen, you hear those words? <laughs> is there not someone left of the house of Saul? See, covenant understanding in him is so strong. I've got to find somebody to express this to. This is what God's like. I'm looking for somebody I can be that actually believes me, that will begin to pull upon me and say, I'm in covenant with you, God. I'm calling upon that covenant now in the name of Jesus Christ. You said you'd never leave me and forsake me. You'd never leave me and forsake me. You said you'd be with me all the days of my life. And you begin, this stuff gets so strong on you that you begin to cry out to God because you realize it's not my goodness, it's His goodness. It's His desire. I mean, whatever I have is blown out of the waters by what He has for me. David said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the unfailing, unsought, unlimited? God, I love that. Unlimited mercy. Now watch what happens. Ziba replied, Jonathan has yet a son who is laying in his feet. Now this, if you read in 1 Samuel, you find out when David's armies came, uh, Jonathan's nurses and stuff figured they thought David was going to kill them all. She tried to run out with Jonathan's son, dropped Mephibosheth, and he was crippled from that day forward. He said, yeah, there's Jonathan has a son who's laying in his feet. The king said, where is he? Ziba replied, he's in the house of Maycare, son of Amy in a Lodibar, verse 10. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maycare, verse 6. And Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, now you got to listen because i got a little, little time. And Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. Now he probably thinks he's going to be killed because <laughs> David's wiped out all of his grandpappy's armies. <laughs> you know what I mean? King Saul. Mephibosheth falls on his face and did obeisance. And David said, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth answered, Behold your servant. David says to him, Fear not. Now you've got to see God in David right now. David says, Fear not, for I will surely show you kindness. Hasid. Listen, for Jonathan, your father's sake. Is it for your sake, Mephibosheth? No, it's for Jonathan's sake. Now listen to me. God's looking for someone who's in covenant with Jesus. You hear me? I said with Jesus. Not because you've done something right, but because Jesus became a covenant sacrifice. He said, Fear not, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. But watch verse 8. This is our attitude. And the cripple bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? <laughs> In other words, I'm unrighteous. I know, I know. I'm unrighteous. I'm unrighteous. I'm unrighteous. This is most of Christianity. And David doesn't even listen to him, just like God doesn't even listen to that jump when it comes out of your mouth. 
Then the king called to Ziba. He doesn't even answer him. The king called to Ziba. Saul's servant said, I've given your master's son all that belonged to Saul in his house, and you shall till the land for him. Jumps on down to verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do according to all the Lord your king commands. Verse 12, it just throws in Mephibosheth had a young son whose name of Micah. In other words, because God's covenant is going to be good to him. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem and he ate continually at the king's table, even though he was lame in both feet. You can be lame and messed up in all your feet and he's still going to have you eat at his table for the rest Amen. of your life. Amen. I've got to Amen. shut up. Father, yes. thank you for your word in Jesus' yeah, name. Amen. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.